0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus.
1: Good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at CA Church, and uh, so good to be together this morning. Um, I'll, I'll tack on... Um, one last announcement to that already long string of announcements that Ryan just shared with you, and that is that, and this is the most exciting of them all, this may be the event everyone's been waiting for all year long. It's our fall congregational meeting this afternoon, <laughs> 2 p.m. on Zoom. If you're interested in kind of the behind the scenes of uh, what happens around here at the church, you can come out to that. The link is on our website. Okay, well, we are continuing our, uh, our series that we've been in over this last eight weeks or so. We're actually finishing it today, looking at the life of Abraham. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 22? Genesis 22, that's the text we'll be unpacking together uh, this morning. And I'm going to invite my friend Tate to come on up, and she's going to be reading our scripture for us this morning. Tate is uh, one of our pastoral apprentices this year, and so really great to have her on the team. And uh, so she'll be reading. Why don't you stand to your feet with us? Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says.
0: The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on this mountain the Lord will... On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take the possessions of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servant, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Tate. You can take a seat. Well, before we get too far into Genesis chapter 22 this morning, I just want to take a moment to go back and give us a little bit of a refresher on what's been going on in the story of Abraham so far kind of what led to this moment up on Mount Moriah that was just read for us. You know, if you know the story, if you've been journeying with us over this last eight weeks or so, we've been tracking with this, this couple, Abraham and Sarah. And if you remember back in chapter 12, God called Abraham and his wife to leave the land of Ur, to leave their city, their home, their family, and, and to leave that all behind and to go to this land that God would show them. And God said that he was going to make Abraham's name great, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through their lineage. And so essentially throughout this sermon series, we've been, we've been tracking with Abraham and Sarah as they did leave Ur, and as they did step out in faith. But as we've pointed out over and over again throughout the weeks, the journey wasn't smooth sailing for Abraham and Sarah. Sometimes Abraham had this tremendous faith and followed God in the midst of uncertainty and questions and was this incredible example of faithfulness. But then there were other times, or maybe I should say, maybe maybe even most of the time, Abraham showed some, some faithlessness, took stuff into his own hands and really messed things up. And you know, I don't know about you, but that part of Abraham's story, the reality that he did not live this whole life out perfectly, I find that to be so comforting in my walk with God. Because Abraham is, is pointed at in several places all throughout scripture as this person that we should look to, this great example of a, a person who lives out a life of faith. And, uh, and Abraham wasn't the perfect guy. He was far from it. He made some big mistakes in his journey, and yet God continued to show him grace upon grace upon grace and continued to use him, even though he stumbled and he fell along the way. So as we come to Genesis chapter 22, here's a few things that I think are really important for us to remember as we approach this text. First, and, and, and just as I, I said just a few moments ago, several times throughout the story, God promised that he was going to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham. That, that, he, that his descendants would be greater than all the stars in the sky. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son. And it's through that son that all these promises God had given him would be fulfilled. And you know, that sounds super simple, or at least a little bit simple, straightforward enough, except that Abraham and Sarah, they were 70 years old, at least 70 years old when God made this initial promise to them. And Abraham and Sarah, they'd been trying to have a kid. They'd been trying to have babies for several decades at this point, and they hadn't been able to conceive and then 25 years had passed since that moment in their 70s to when the promise was actually fulfilled. Imagine waiting 25 years for the fulfillment of a promise. So, so by this time that, that Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah, and, and I, I hope I don't offend anyone who's in this room right now, but Abraham and Sarah were old, okay? <laughs> Most scholars would agree that they were well into their 90s at this point. And against all odds, God was faithful to his promise, and they did have a son. A son in their old age, they named their son Isaac. And I cannot imagine what that moment must have been like, you know, for a few reasons. I mean, firstly, I, I remember what those toddler years, I'm living them right now, what those toddler years are like. And I'm a relatively young guy. This week, I was thinking about my dear friend and, and one of my heroes, Don Kraus, who's part of our church. He's in his mid-90s. Imagining him trying to raise a little toddler. Like, this was no joke for Abraham and Sarah, But also, imagine the joy that they must have felt as God fulfilled his his promise of this long-awaited son, and he finally arrived. So as we get to Genesis 22, Isaac's been born. He's been been growing up. By this time, he's probably a teenager, most scholars say. He could be older than a teenager, maybe even into his 20s. And and with all of that in mind, let's jump into this text. We'll work our way through it kind of verse by verse, section by section. Here's what it says. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Okay, pause. What is going on here? (laughs) Like we read this text 4,000 years later, and I don't know about you, but I think for many of us, it is absolutely shocking, or at least it should be, the fact that God would ask Abraham to, to engage in child sacrifice, to take his son up this mountain and then to lay him on an altar and offer him there as a burnt offering. You know, I think this might be one of the most jarring and bizarre, even confusing moments in the entire biblical narrative. Why would God ask Abraham to do that? Richard Dawkins, who's an acclaimed academic and atheist, he said this. He said, "A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example of simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense I was only obeying orders." Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. This disgraceful story, he says. You know, Genesis chapter 22 is one of the sections of scripture that skeptics of the, the Christian faith, like Dawkins and, and many, many others, have used to discredit the Christian faith, or at least to paint God into this, this image of being this moral monster, even the great Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, who's taught here on this stage multiple times, he, he, makes, he, he says this about this, this, this story. He says, this command that God gives to Abraham to sacrifice his son, he says, this command, it teeters on the edge of morality. And I think one of the reasons that this story is so shocking, even confusing to the Christian readers, because it seems to go against everything we know about God to be, his personality and his character And not only generally speaking, but but later on in scripture, God is super clear that he doesn't want or condone human sacrifice. He is very explicit in several different texts that he absolutely opposes human sacrifice. We see that in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Micah, and in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 10, God explicitly condemns the killing of innocent victims. So what exactly is going on here? Why would God make this kind of request to Abraham? And then then on top of all of those questions about what this story kind of teaches us about the nature of God, let's just zero in on Abraham's specific story for a moment. You know, multiple times over, God has promised that that Abraham is is gonna have descendants that are greater than all the stars in the sky, that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then God was also super clear that all those promises were gonna happen through Isaac. So what is going on? On, Unless I'm missing something, it appears that God is about to break his promise to Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. You know, as, as Abraham heard that request from God, it's, it's really unlikely that he would have experienced the same shock factor that we do reading this in the 21st century context. And here's why. Because child sacrifice was super common practice in the ancient Near East. Many of the other religions of the day, they required that their followers sacrifice their firstborn child to the gods, to the deities, in order to ward off evil or to ensure divine protection. And this common practice of the day is one of the reasons that throughout the whole Torah, God is repeatedly telling his people that he does not accept these kind of sacrifices, that he's different than all the other gods of the day. And here's why I mention this. Because while our modern ears hear this request, and it sounds absolutely vile, even monstrous, maybe it is, to Abraham, it likely wouldn't have surprised him at all. Maybe it even would have been expected. I mean, was it hard? Absolutely. Was it shocking, confusing? For sure. Like, like Isaac, this was your idea, God. You made me wait for 25 years for this son. You want me to sacrifice Isaac? Isaac? Like what about all the chats we had under the stars when you talked about blessing me, when you said that, that, that Isaac was going to be the one who all the blessings flew, flowed through? None of that has happened yet. And this is where the reader is let in on something that Abraham isn't going to know for quite some time in the story. Verse 1 says it like this: Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This was a test. See, God could have just told Abraham what he was about to discover through this three-day event. He could have communicated it to Abraham in a conversation. But given the cultural context that Abraham lived in, he would have never heard it. He would have never understood it fully. So God takes him on this experience in order to reveal his character and his grace, in order to strengthen Abraham's faith. God tests Abraham. Abraham. And this isn't the first time that that testing shows up in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Ancient rabbinic teaching actually talks about this event as the 10th testing of Abraham. But regardless of the exact count of the different tests, Abraham comes now to, without a doubt, the hardest test of his entire life. Could he trust God, even with his son, that he loved more than anything else? And remember, Isaac wasn't just the promised son. He was the son of promise, He represented Abraham's legacy as the father of many nations. God said that Abraham was going to become this household name for generations to come. His name would be passed down through all of history, that the entire world would be blessed through his seed. So here's what we're about to find out in the story. Will Abraham trust God with all of that, With with his legacy, with his future? Will he lay that down the gift and trust the giver of the gift? Or will he do what he's done before? Will he, will he kind of try to come up with his own plan? God tests Abraham. And, and here's maybe a question for us to ponder together this morning, is, is, does God test us today? Like of course, he's testing Abraham in this ancient text in this story, but does God test you? Does God test me? And I think the answer that we find in Scripture is yes. This idea of testing, it's not unique to Abraham's story. All throughout the biblical narrative, we see God testing his people. Uh, One example of it is Exodus chapter 16, when God provides manna for the Israelites, and uh, they're wandering in the desert. Do you remember that story? The Israelites have been wandering in the desert and every morning God provides them manna and quail and he tells them to only take enough that day for that day, not to store up anything for tomorrow, just take what you need for today. And so here's the test that the Israelites face that time. They face this test. Would they trust God as their provider and take him at his word that he would provide? Or would they hoard and store up more for tomorrow just in case God didn't come through on his promise? Did they trust him? That was what the testing was about at that time. And then you even jump over to the New Testament, and there's several references to the testing all throughout the New Testament, but look specifically at James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, where James, the author of this letter, he writes this. He says, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance.'" The testing of your faith produces perseverance, I uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I have been going to the gym as of late and uh, I recognize you can't see results yet. (laughs) But I trust that sometime in the next decade I'm going to have a washboard stomach and maybe some biceps or something like that. But uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but, uh, but I've been going to, to the gym with my friend, PJ, who is incredibly fit, he's a personal trainer, and he has been pushing me when we go. Like we're at the squat rack, and, and, and we've already done 10 or 12, and I, and I feel like I've, done absol- I've already gone past what I can do. And then he says, one more! And I'm like, everything mustered up inside of me, I do that one more, and then he shouts, one more! And then sometimes I'm able to crank out just that one more, and and sometimes I'm able to push back past that one that I thought was my last and go on, and I get so mad at him. But I'm also so thankful, because he's been putting my body under this intense testing. And over this past month or so that I've been going to the gym, I already have noticed some differences where I can start to do things that I couldn't do last month. And I have a long way to go on my fitness journey, but as I've I've, I've been seeing progress, I've started to trust PJ more and more. Like maybe I don't think that I can do another squat, but if you say I can, I don't know—I'll give it everything I have. And even though the the journey is painful, it is ultimately for my good, or so he tells me. (laughs) The testing of our faith it produces perseverance. It builds this deeper trust in God it's not until we, try, we, we encounter these trials and tests that we actually start to, to discover the depth of our faith. But here, I also want to make a distinction between testing and tempting. This isn't just semantics. This is, this is something that the Bible is very clear on. There's a difference between testing and tempting. God tests us, but he never tempts us. What's the difference? Well, testing is about drawing us into deeper relationship with God, deeper reliance on him. Tempting, on the other hand, leads us away from God. So you can think about it like this Testing is what PJ does with me in the gym, tempting is what Satan does to me in the kitchen. (laughs) But all jokes aside, this is is a really important distinction. Let me give you a really simple contrast of of these two from the Bible. Think about the Garden of Eden. God tests the first human by placing this this tree in the middle of of the garden. And here's the, the question. Here's the test that they need to overcome. Will they trust God when he says not to eat from the tree? When he says that it's not good for them? God tests them. Satan tempts them by telling them to take from it, by telling them that they'll be, with, be like God if they eat it, by lying and twisting the things that God said. God tests, but he never tempts. And not only is that a good theological truth for us to understand, but I think it's really important for us to recognize as we walk through our own lives See, I wonder, as you look at your life, is it possible that God could be using the situation you're walking through to test you, to develop perseverance in you, to shape and mold your character, to lead you into this deeper reliance and trust in him? You know, this, this realization that God, God tests us and, and, and grows perseverance in our hearts, I think it can add a lot of perspective and meaning to the trials that we face, how might God be using this situation that is in front of you for your own good? Okay, let's continue in the story. Verse 3, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded up his donkey. You know, a lot of scholars have pointed out that Abraham probably woke up really early and they left on this trip early out of, out of kind of protection for Sarah. Because, like, how would he explain this to her? Like, what he's about to do. Can you imagine she's been waiting all her life to have a baby, to have this baby boy and, and you're gonna do what to him, Abraham? Like come again? So he, so he leaves early that morning. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. This journey to the region of Moriah, it must have, it must have felt like an eternity for Abraham as they walked and walked for days, three days, like, I wonder, what was Abraham thinking about for those three days? What was going through his head? One scholar described those three days as a nightmare of cruel visions. What was he thinking about? Well, the author of Hebrews kind of gives us some insight, this window into Abraham's thought life as he journeyed towards Moriah. Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham, as Abraham walked, he reasoned that God could raise the dead. Abraham reasoned. He reasoned that God had had made this promise and he had sealed it in a covenant. That God had had put his own reputation on the line making that covenant with Abraham. Because remember, God God was very specific all throughout the story that, that Isaac is the one that the descendants would flow through. For three days, Abraham reasoned and he finally came to the conclusion that God would even raise Isaac from the dead if he had to in order to fulfill his promise. God would give Isaac back somehow. Somehow, in some way, Isaac was gonna live. Abraham reasoned. And here's what I think that means for us: it means that we don't have to shut off our brains in order to live by faith. A lot of people think that, you, that to have faith means that you just close your eyes and kind of blindly follow. But but faith is not opposed to thinking. In order to be a person of faith, you don't have to throw out logic or reason or neglect science or the facts. Abraham used his brain, he reasoned with God. Remembering that, number one, God had promised to bless the world. Number two, that God specifically promised that the blessing would come through Isaac. And then three, that God had been faithful to all of his promises in the past. And therefore, somehow, God would keep his promise and would either raise Isaac from the dead or would provide some sort of other out some, by some other unknown means. We see this trust and this reasoning play out in the the verses that follow in chapter 22. Look at verse four. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you catch that? We will worship and then we will come back to you. Again, this is this beautiful picture of Abraham's faith. God will provide. We are both coming down that mountain. And so they go. Verse 6 says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. This moment in the text is what a lot of theologians refer to as a typology. It's a picture. It's it's a foreshadowing of sorts of another son who 2,000 years later would climb another hill carrying the wood, the cross, for his sacrifice. As they walked together, Eventually, Isaac asks Abraham the question that I imagine he was dreading the whole way up. He said, where's the lamb, dad? The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? If I were Abraham, I'd wanna say like, I have that same question too, Isaac. Where is the lamb? I've been wrestling with the same question for three long days, Isaac. But in that moment, Abraham makes the greatest statement of faith yet. Verse eight, remember, he's already reasoned that God can raise Isaac from the dead. But now he reasons that somehow God would provide an alternate solution. That there's no way that he would go about making him fulfill this monstrous act. Abraham was so bold to promise Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. He had no clue how God was gonna do it. But he trusted that he would. He had reasoned that this God The one he had come to love and trust was a different kind of God. He wasn't like the other gods. He wasn't like Elkanah and the God of Libna. Yahweh was loving and kind and merciful. He was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And this is the point in the story that the narrator slows slows the whole thing down. He gives every little detail of what's going on in this scene. He says uh, that in obedience... Abraham builds the altar. So he starts to gather the rocks. He lays them all down and places them where they need to be. And I imagine he slowly, very slowly grabs the sticks and puts them on top of the rocks. And then he took Isaac. And a lot of biblical scholars point out the fact that Isaac must have willfully gone up on the altar. It doesn't mention this in the text doesn't say much about Isaac's demeanor at all, actually. But you have to remember, Abraham is over 100 years old at this point. And Isaac's a, a young, strong man. And so there's no way Abraham could have forced him up onto the altar. So he willingly steps in onto the altar in that moment. He trusts Abraham. He trusts God. You know, there's been so many different artists who have, who have tried to capture this moment on a canvas. But one of the greatest kind of tellings of this through art that I've seen is, is by Rembrandt. Art has this kind of way of capturing emotion in a way that other things can't. And, and, and I think a few things set this specific painting apart for me. You know, first, I, I can so appreciate that Rembrandt paints the picture of Abraham covering Isaac's face. If this was one of my kids, Kinsley or Harper, I would not want them having the mental picture of what was about to happen. So he covers Isaac's eyes, probably murmuring under his breath, I love you, son. Dad loves you. The second thing I want you to see from the painting is, uh, is the way that he, he's holding the knife or not holding the knife. He must have been holding it so lightly, just waiting, maybe praying, believing he's gonna stop me. He's not gonna make me go through this. He's, he's holding it in such a way that as soon as God says the words, he can just drop the knife and the whole thing will be over. Daryl Johnson said this. He said, this is the greatness of Abraham's faith. Not that he would sacrifice his son if God asked him to do it, The greatness of Abraham's faith is that he believed that this God would not require such a monstrous sacrifice. So Abraham lifts up his knife ever so gently, holding it in the the air, doing doing what he's been told to do, but but ready to drop it, expecting, expecting to drop it. And then in that moment, the angel of the Lord shouted in a loud voice, Abraham! Abraham! Don't lay a hand on the boy. And I imagine that before the angel could even finish that statement, Abraham dropped it and grabbed his son as quickly as he could hugged him, maybe closer than tighter than he ever had before. And I I imagine he's saying, I knew it. This is a different God. He's not like the other gods. Maybe he looked at Isaac and he said, I told you we could trust God. I told you he was faithful. I told you that he would see us through. I told you. And then uh, Abraham and Isaac, they looked over into the tree and there was a ram caught in some thorns. So they took the lamb, they took the ram, and they sacrificed it to the Lord. And Abraham and Isaac, they named that spot the Lord will provide. I think it's interesting they uh, they named that. They didn't name that that spot Abraham will obey. They named that spot God will provide, and this was the theme of Abraham's whole life. This is what God had been teaching him all the way back when He called him out from Ur and took him on this journey, that He would provide. God had told him, I'll be be your God, Abraham. But Abraham was never really sure. God said, I will provide. I will make your name great. I will deliver you, Abraham. But Abraham continued to doubt, and he tried to make things happen on his own. But that day on the Mount of Moriah, it was different. Up on that mountain, Abraham and Isaac made this massive discovery. This discovery of the unconditional, unmerited love of God. See, the general understanding of God or the gods in Abraham's culture the, the, in the ancient Near East, 4,000 years ago, history tells us that the general understanding of the gods was that in order to please them, in order to please the, the deities, you had to sacrifice for them. You had to give them what was most important to you. In most cases, that was your firstborn child, or whatever you treasured most. But what God showed Abraham that day is that he didn't want any of that stuff. He didn't want anything from Abraham. All God wanted from Abraham was Abraham. He wanted his heart. He wanted his trust. See, how do we please God? I'll tell you this much. If we we look at Abraham's story, it is not through perfection. It is not through doing the right thing all the time, being sinless, free of mistakes. Abraham was a mess a lot of the time. I think he got things wrong often, maybe just as many times as he got things right. So how do we please God? I think what we learn in this story is we please God by throwing ourselves on him, by giving him our trust and our hope and our imperfect obedience. See, it's not our sacrifice that makes us right with God. It's his sacrifice. As we get close to the close together this morning, I want to look back for a second at verse 8. If you have it in front of you, you can look down at it. These were the last recorded words that Abraham said to Isaac before putting him up on the altar. He said this. He said, God will provide himself the lamb, my son. Here's what I didn't realize about those words until this week. Abraham was actually prophesying. And I'm not even sure that Abraham knew that in that moment. God will provide himself the lamb, my son. That statement is just chocked full of rich theology. God will provide himself, the lamb, my son. I hear God saying, it's my son. It's not your son, Abraham. I will provide my son. And 2,000 years later, the one who prevented Abraham from thrusting that knife into Isaac's throat was born into the world. God himself put on human flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the truth we'll be celebrating starting next week, leading all the way up till Christmas, is this beautiful truth that God would come for us, but not just that he would come for us, but that he would sacrifice himself for us. The story of Abraham and Isaac, it would be reenacted, but this time in the person of Jesus, in the person of the son, who is so much more than a son the son that fulfills all the promises of God. And this son, he, he would, like Isaac, carry the wood up the hill, and that wood would become the altar that he would be sacrificed on. The difference, though, between Isaac and Jesus is that for Jesus, there wouldn't be a substitute. There wouldn't be a lamb in the thicket. Why? Because he himself was the substitute. Because Jesus in himself is both the beloved son and as John the Baptist would later go on to say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hey, I, I recognize that the story of Abraham is a hard one to understand. It is hard. <laughs> and I've been wrestling with it like crazy over this last week. But I've come to realize that, that we won't even get close to understanding it if we don't see it in light of the cross. The this, this, this story of Abraham and Isaac is this signpost to a much greater story that is to come. The sparing of Isaac, it points us towards the sacrifice of Jesus. It's this great foreshadowing, this parallel, this picture of the cross, where on a hill called Golgotha, God the Father would sacrifice his son for us. In Romans 8, Paul says it like this He says, Since God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all will he not also in him graciously give us all things? See, at the, at the center of the Christian faith is a God who doesn't simply demand everything from us, but it's a God who, who, who gives everything for us. It's not a faith that's first and foremost about our commitment to God, but it's about a God who is so committed to us, so committed that he would come, so committed that he would die on our behalf to deal with our sin and to make a way for us. And so how do we respond to a God like this? By throwing ourselves on him, by trusting him completely. We receive the gift that is Jesus, that he has given us through his life, death, and resurrection. And then we throw ourselves on him completely, trusting that his way is the way that leads to life. You know, there is no better way for us to respond to a text like this than with communion. So that's what we're going to do in these next few moments. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward and band if you want to join me as well. We're going to move into a time of response. The story of, of the sacrificing of Isaac is this beautiful foreshadowing of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who would give up everything for us. And so if you're new to our church or uh, the whole Christian experience, um, what communion is is, it's, it's, it's really ordinary bread. An ordinary juice, but with extraordinary meaning. The, the bread that we'll eat together represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us on the cross. And, uh, and as we participate in communion this morning, it's, it's, it's almost this, 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 this way of us throwing ourselves on him. It's this way of us saying, I accept the sacrifice that Jesus has given for me. I trust That while I am so imperfect and incapable of making a way for myself, that you came and made a way. I trust in you, Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.